For those of you uh, who don't know me, my name is Helen. I've been married to Alan for 24 years this uh, summer. We have three children. Jacob and Max are 21 and 19 in the summer holidays, uh, and our daughter Faith is 13. And I lead all of our work with families and children here at the church And this week, we launched our brand new Raising Tweens and Teens course. We have 23 parents and carers in that group. We've got an amazing team. And we would love your prayers over these next three weeks as we journey together, thinking about the joys and the trials of raising children through adolescence and into adulthood And while we're on that topic, and to give you just a little insight into our lives, I thought um, I would share uh, something with you from our week. So this week, we collected both boys from university. And don't get me wrong, like we love having them home for the holidays. But it, it does take a little bit of getting used to in terms of how much the shopping bill goes up and then how quickly the fridge empties after the shopping has arrived. And um, so last weekend, he does know I'm I'm showing this, I took this little picture. Uh, Ruth's just going to put that up now for me. There you go. This is Jacob's pre-lunch snack. This is just a snack. He would like to point out, he's not here this morning, that this is just what didn't fit on the plate. And I I took that and it reminded me of this little cartoon. For those of you with younger kids, you'll recognize this. That's not my teenager. He said he isn't hungry. So for those of you here this morning, if you have parented through this stage and survived, like, please come find me at the end. And I would like to know, when does the never-ending snacking stage stop? At what age? So um, there was someone at the 9 a.m. in his 20s, and he just shouted out, never. So, so that is a little insight into me and my life. But now um, let's turn uh, our attention to the final verses of the final chapter of Nehemiah. Now, many of you may have looked at these verses uh, with your six or your small group uh, this week, and you might have thought, my goodness, that's a rather challenging way for Nehemiah to end. Uh, Or you perhaps might have thought, oh goodness, Nehemiah seems to have completely lost the plot. So before we read the passage, I thought it would be really good to look and remind ourselves of the context. So, all the way back in chapters one and two, we saw that Nehemiah was a man called by God and he was given this vision and passion to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And his desire was to reestablish and to reclaim Jerusalem as God's city, a holy city. In chapters 3 to 6, the walls are rebuilt and it takes 52 days. In chapter 7, God then places a new desire in Nehemiah's heart. And this time it's for God's people. And as God's chosen people return to Jerusalem, 
then not only is the city going to be refilled with physical bodies, but it's also going to be refilled spiritually. The priests and the Levites will be released to do their jobs in the temple, and praise and worship will fill the city again. Then in chapters 8 to 11, we see Ezra the priest read all of the Old Testament laws over all of these newly settled people. And he leads them in a time of confession. And then the whole community renews the covenant promises that the Jewish people have made from generation to generation. And the Israelites take time to remind themselves of their God-given inheritance and identity of who they are and of what they've been called to do. And then in chapter 12, there's this amazing celebration where they rededicate the city, they rededicate the people as being set apart for God. And that's it. Like, job done, high fives all round, like, holy city rebuilt, check, Holy people rededicated, check, Nehemiah can leave Jerusalem. And so he does. He leaves the city and he leaves the people and he goes back to Babylon. But in chapter 13, we see that he's come back. And we don't actually know how much time passed before he returned. Some scholars say it might be a year and a half But other people say it could be up to 15 years later that he comes back. But the thing is, it doesn't really matter how long Nehemiah is away for. What matters is what he finds when he comes back. Now, when Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem the first time, he found broken walls and no community. When he returns, yes, the city still has walls. It is still rebuilt. But this time, it's the community and the people that are broken and in need of repairing. And Nehemiah must have felt devastated when he saw this. In chapter 7, these are the people that God has laid on his heart. And when he saw what had happened, Nehemiah must have thought that all his work had been in vain. His efforts to re-establish a holy city and to renew a holy people have been wasted. So it's important when we read chapter 13 to recognize that we're hearing both Nehemiah's explanation, but also his anguish at how his attempts to rebuild the people of God have fallen apart. In verses 1 to 14, the passage that Bryony and Gareth um, preached on, we hear of the corruption or threat to the temple. The temple has not been kept holy. There is no worshipping community. In verses 15 to 22, Nehemiah writes about the corruption of the Sabbath, The day has not been kept holy. And therefore, there's a threat to the godly rhythms of rest and work that will keep the community healthy. And then finally, in today's passage, verses 23 to 31, Nehemiah focuses attention 
not on the community corporately, but on people personally. And so that's what we're going to read now. Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 23 to 31. If you've got your Bibles, it'll be great to turn to them, but it's also going to be on the screen behind me. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joada, son of Eliashib the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. And that, folks, is the end of Nehemiah. So he is going out with a bang. And I feel I need to make it clear right now that if you have married a foreign wife, I do not think that this makes you unholy. And I also want to be crystal clear that I do not think that beating people, pulling out their hair or cursing them is a good, right or appropriate way to be encouraging and developing holiness within our communities. Just right there. So that might leave you thinking, well, what is she going to say? And to be honest, I've spent quite a bit of time thinking the same thing. So today I'm going to share a little bit of what God has, speaking, has been speaking to me about personally and revealing to me through this passage. And my hope and prayer is that as I do that, God also speaks to your life as well. Now, I first found out that I was speaking on this passage on April the 14th, and it was Maundy Thursday. And Rachel, who's Tom's PA, sent me an email. Can you speak on the 26th of June? And the topic is holiness. And I replied saying, yes, of course. But actually, I thought, no, I really can't. I don't think that I can share a single thought about holiness. And the reason that I thought this 
was nothing to do with me thinking that my prayer life was substandard or that the amount that I read the Bible was inadequate or because I was struggling with some secret sin. It was actually to do with how I felt about my physical body. I didn't feel physically holy. And on Monday Thursday, I was sat right there between those two pillars. I'd had an operation the day before. I had stitches in my stomach. Uh, The wound was, to be honest, a bit oozy. The bandage was pretty itchy. I couldn't laugh or cough. I couldn't bend over. I couldn't lift anything. And then alongside that, there's the elephant in the room. I'm going to name it, and I'm going to go there. I'm a 45-year-old, middle-aged woman. And whether you want to use the word menopausal or perimenopausal, I don't really care what the prefix is at the front. I am it. I am pausal. (laughs) My body is changing And sometimes I am disorientated and I'm confused and other times I'm just downright annoyed and frustrated. And overall, I definitely wouldn't use the word holy to describe how I felt about my body. And so I'm sat there between those pillows on Maundy Thursday and I think, I cannot speak about holiness. And then God said, Do you think you should read the passage that you're speaking on? And I said, no. And for two weeks, God was very gracious with me. But then on the 3rd of May, we were watching the HTB Leadership Conference as a staff team. There was an interview with John Mark Comer. If you don't know him, he's a church leader from the States. He writes excellently. He's a great commentator. I recommend you check out his books. And you can actually also watch all of this interview online. And one of the things that he spoke about was how in Western culture, we have a real problem with ageism. And there's an assumption that once we get to 40, then it's all downhill from there and your best years are gone. In contrast, he said that as Christians, we should live with the hope and the excitement that although we might lose our physical health, we might lose our beauty, our body shape may change, and we may no longer be young, cool, and trendy, and he questions whether we ever were in the first place. But instead of that, we are being transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And this means that our best years will actually be in our 70s, 80s, and 90s. He said, so if you've turned 40, then you are just now getting ready for the good part. And I felt God, felt God saying something along these lines. Helen, I know that you feel that your body is falling apart right now. But your best understanding and experience and growth in holiness is yet to come. So I really think you should read that Nehemiah passage now. And I said, 
Okay, I suppose so. <laughs> and once I had read it, I realized that this passage is all about people, their physical living bodies, and what they think and believe about them. And it's all about holiness. Being holy literally means to be set apart, to be distinct, and to be chosen by God. And the Israelites were and always had been a holy people set apart by God and for God. God has made his covenant only with them and no other people. And this meant that the Israelites were not holy people because the city of Jerusalem now had a wall. And they weren't holy because of what did or didn't happen in the temple. And they were not holy because of what they did or didn't do on the Sabbath. They were holy because God said that they were. And this was his covenant promise to them. And Nehemiah knew this. But in chapter 13, verses 23 to 31, the people have forgotten it. They've forgotten that they, in their very physical being, were holy. What the Israelites thought about themselves had become corrupted. And because what they believed about themselves had become corrupted, they'd lost sight of what it meant to live from a place of closeness and belonging to God. And so instead of living from that covenant place of being declared holy, they started to make earthly covenants with anyone. They thought it didn't matter who they got into bed with, who they married, or what they did with their bodies. And as a result of this, their distinct identity and their separateness as a holy people set apart by God and for God was being threatened. And Nehemiah also points out it wasn't just their set-apart identity that was being threatened. It was their children's and future generations too. Because the Israelite children were not hearing God's truths and words spoken over them and into their lives, in future, they too would not be able to speak of what it meant to be a holy people chosen and set apart by God. So in chapter 13, we see that Nehemiah is frustrated and saddened, but not because of what the Israelites have or haven't done when it comes to their relationships and their bodies and marriage and sex, but the reasons why they have made those decisions. The Israelites had forgotten that they themselves, as individuals, living bodies, were holy and belonged closely to God. If they had understood that better, if they'd been able to hold on to this truth, it would have helped them to make wiser decisions and to have greater strength when it came to living differently and living in a way that honoured God. Because if we know and remember that God declares that we are holy and that that is our identity, 
that truth will have an impact on how we view ourselves, our marriages, our families, all of our relationships. I love what Rachel Gardner says about holiness in her new book, The Sex Thing. And that sex is written in red on a red book to highlight the fact that we don't talk about it. It's very clever. She writes, The offence of holiness is that we don't get to say what makes us or anyone holy. In essence, holiness isn't about us. Holiness is about God and about who God declares to be holy. Rather than a standard to achieve, it is an identity I receive as this new life takes shape in me. I am holy. I am set apart. I am pure. I am God's. Because of Jesus, this new creation life is possible. And what's more, even when I'm struggling, I am still a new creation. I am still holy. And this is all part of the unfurling into the person God made me to be. And so as I read that Bible passage from Nehemiah and thought about what it means to be holy, God reminded me that I may feel like my body is a bit bashed around right now. I may feel like I'm a hormonal mess. And I may have scars that I wish weren't there. But through Jesus' death on a cross, God says that I, in all my middle-aged glory, am holy, just as I am. And he wants me to live from this place and from this identity of belonging closely to him. And it's the same for all of us. And I don't just mean it's the same for all of us middle-aged women. In a recent UK survey, 58% of men aged 16 to 40 said that the pandemic had negatively affected the way that they felt about their body. And 48% of them said that this had impacted their mental health. And when it comes to body positivity, there has been a lot of work and campaigning in women's fashion, and that is fantastic. But sadly, the images and portrayal of men on the catwalk and in advertising and on social media are now the least diverse in the entire fashion industry. And if you relate to that, God says that you are holy. And in the last few weeks, I've spoken to women in their 20s and 30s who are pregnant and struggling with their changing bodies. And to those who've had kids already, but now feel unhappy about having a different body shape to that which they had before children. And if you relate to that, God says that you are holy. And I know men and women in their 50s and 60s and 70s and beyond who are trying to come to terms with bodies that are sick and getting older, not working in the way that they used to. People who feel frustrated and fed up and fearful about what's happening to their body. 
And if you relate to that, God says that you are holy. We are not more holy because we've been working out at the gym. We've now got a six-pack. We're not made more holy because we fit or follow a lifestyle image that Instagram declares is on trend right now. We've not got a greater chance of living a holy life because we can fit back into our pre-pregnancy genes. And we're not less holy because our eyesight is failing or our minds are becoming more confused. We are holy because God declares that we are. And this is his covenant promise to us through Jesus. And if we can really grasp that and know that, then this will help us to live differently. We'll be able to base our decisions and our actions upon this truth and live a life that is distinct and separate, different from the world around us. And a witness to those in our family, our friends, those we work with, our neighbours. As 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, You are a chosen people, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. In his interview, John Mark Homer said that we all need to engage more with our latent desire for sainthood and to have a richer imagination of who we are. And so that's what I've been trying to do over these past few weeks, to have a richer imagination and a greater understanding of my latent God-given holiness. Not just for myself, but also for my children and future generations. When I speak about my body, I want my children to hear God's truths and words spoken over them and into their lives so that they in turn are able to speak of what it means to be a holy people set apart and chosen by God. And because this passage focuses on marriage, I've been using some of the words from the marriage vows to help me do that. There was a wedding here yesterday And the bride and groom said these words to one another. With my body, I honour you. All that I am, I give to you. That was their covenant promise to each other. But it's also a reflection of our covenant with God. That we come before him and we say, with my body, I honour you. All that I am, I give to you. And I am definitely still a work in progress. But by bringing before God my feelings of physical unholiness and just regularly praying those words, with my body, I honor you. All that I am, I give to you. It's been incredibly powerful. And I realized last week from the verse that Gareth used in his sermon, that my prayer is an echo of Romans 12, verse 1. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so that is what I would like to invite us to do now in the context of worship. The band are going to come up to the stage and we're going to take some time and space to respond to God and to dedicate our bodies to God. We're going to allow God to declare over us that we are holy. So if your body feels broken, or you're struggling with illness, or the way that you feel about your body, whether you're young, middle-aged, or better, whether you feel like your best years are behind you, or whether you feel like you're living your best life now, I'm going to come before God and say, with my body, I honour you. All that I am, I give to you. Because if we want to be people like Nehemiah, with a vision and a passion to rebuild the broken parts of our city, to establish embassies of hope across the city, and to reclaim every area of the city for Jesus, then we need to start by allowing God to repair and rebuild and restore us. We need to remember that we are chosen and set apart. And then we need to live out of that God-given identity as a holy people, belonging closely to him and also being sent by him to be ambassadors for Christ in the city of Sheffield.